are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Good morning, White Church. My name is Barbara Hinkle, and I'm going to be reading Luke 7, 11-17 for you. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the briar they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. All right, welcome back. Barb, thank you for reading for us. We have this short story of just seven verses this morning. It is a story succinctly told, but there is so much more here than meets the eye. I don't know if you've ever read a Bible passage that you know, and then you see something there that you have never noticed before. I hope you get to have that experience in your own personal time in Scripture, that that is something that regularly happens for us. That's the way it is with God's Word. When we spend time there, we start to discover and see things we never saw before. We get to be lifelong learners as followers of Jesus. My twin daughters are in sixth grade, and they came home this start of the semester with a project that they were just thrilled about. This assignment is called the Passion Project, and the idea is really quite simple. Each student is simply supposed to select a topic that they're passionate about, that they are going to research and study and write and then present to the class. Now, my girls didn't ask me for any of my ideas, but I did offer them anyway. And I, I said to them, hey, one of you should totally present about the history of the periodic table of elements. And there were just blank stares looking back at me. And then they said, no, dad. No, that that sounds boring. Not cool, Dad. So we'll see what they come up with. Uh, Apparently not my idea, but what a fun assignment to foster the spirit of learning. And so what have you been learning about lately for all of us, even us grown-ups? And especially, what have you been learning about Jesus? You ever forget that's what we're actually doing here? You know, you think back to going outside on a Sunday morning to hop in your car and head to church, and let's say your neighbor sees you from across the way and hollers over, hey, good morning, where are you guys off to? And you say, we're going to church, which is true, right? But back that up, and what if you were to actually say, I'm going to learn about Jesus? That would probably stop your neighbor right in his slippers, that kind of answer. We don't go to church like we're going to the grocery store to run some errand. We're here to learn about Jesus. We are lifelong learners, and becoming more like Jesus, our Savior, is our ultimate passion project. Today in Luke 7, we're learning something. And specifically, we're learning how to see like Jesus. I stood out in the driveway the other night, 
had been studying this passage. I'm looking up at the moon and just seeing the ebb and flow of my day and thinking, how can I learn to see more like Jesus? To see the world that he does, to see the people around me the way that he sees people. And that's the question that I want to ask with you today, is how do we learn to see like Jesus? And to answer that question, we're turning to these seven short verses in Luke. Now, I hope you have your Bible open in front of you and can reference it as we look at this story. As the scene begins, Jesus is approaching a town called Nain. Now, this wasn't a big place by any means. It was a small town about six miles south of Nazareth, which is where Jesus had grown up. From Capernaum, which is where we were in the first part of chapter 7, it was about a day's journey, or about 20 miles. Presumably then, Jesus and his disciples had left Capernaum that morning, had traveled on foot all day, and are now approaching Nain somewhere toward evening. That timeline will also align with the event that's happening when they get there, and we'll see that in a minute. Now, as I said, Nain was this small, unremarkable town back then, and really not much has changed since then. Nain, now spelled N-E-I-N, is still around. It is this small Arab town in northern Israel. They now have a McDonald's and a gas station. That's changed. But still a population that's less than 2,000 people. 2,000 years ago, as Jesus approached Nain, he's accompanied by his disciples, and it says that a large crowd is following along. Now, they are about to be met by another large crowd coming out of the town. And so what's about to happen here, we should see, is going to be witnessed by many, many people. And here's how it starts. If you look at verse 12, we see Jesus approach the town gate, and a dead person was being carried out. Now, what this is, is a funeral processional. We don't see them quite as often anymore today, but I bet many of you can recall seeing the hearse coming down the road with a line of cars following behind it. All the lights are on, and they might even have a little ribbon tied on the antenna to mark the vehicles in this procession. As a sign of respect, then you would pull your own car over to the side of the road and let the processional pass through. It was a funeral procession that Jesus encountered that day just minus the cars. And I want to tell you briefly about their funeral customs back then so you can picture this story from that day in Nain as vividly as possible. In the ancient Near East, at the time of Jesus, when someone died, they would first of all confirm that death was absolutely certain. Now, they didn't have a stethoscope or other electronic equipment, but these people lived much closer to death than you and I are used to. They had their ways to readily determine if someone had died or was still alive. So once death was confirmed, and only then would the family then tear their garments, tear their clothes as a sign of mourning, and then they would close the eyes of the deceased as a sign that death had come. Then they would anoint the body with oils and perfumes and spices and would wrap it in a burial cloth. Now, because of the warm climate, they would not have multiple days, you know, until burial like we're accustomed to. It was all usually carried out 
on the same day with burial then happening toward the evening. So after all the requisite preparations, the body has been anointed and wrapped. It's placed on a bier, B-I-E-R, which is a word that comes up in the story. And a bier was a flat plank that was used to carry a body to the burial site. So you have to think about this. Unlike a coffin or an urn that's enclosed, the bier did not have a lid. And so the body was plainly visible until burial. Now, the burial site themselves would have been outside of town somewhere in these caves or sunken rocks. We see this in Jesus' burial as well, that Sunday morning that the women get up before the break of day and they're heading out of the city to visit the tomb. And that's where this funeral processional is headed. They're heading out of the town gate of Nain with the body as Jesus and this large crowd are about to head in. Now, I want to ask you, what do you think is the main action of this story? What do you think takes center stage? Where is the spotlight at? And I ask that because at first blush, you know, we'd say it's a story about Jesus raising a dead man. And certainly this miracle should get our attention as it will with Lazarus and Jairus' daughter. But the focal point in this particular story is not so much the dead man on the bier as it is the woman at the head of the processional. We see at the head of the procession a woman who has suffered two losses. She was already a widow, having buried her husband sometime before, and now she is at yet another funeral this time for her only son. It says later in the text that he was a young man. So he's someone who has died in the prime of life. Death at any age is a loss. And yet when it comes early, when it is a son or a daughter, grieving is especially hard. And here is a mother who is walking her boy to be buried, having spent the day weeping over his body. A mother who has cried many tears once before for her husband, and now they come again for her only son. And I think we have to enter this story and sit with the grief that is here for a while. But then there's something that we should also realize culturally. We have to understand at this time and this place that a woman was defined by her relationship to the men in her family. So to become a widow, to be husbandless, left the woman in a very precarious economic position. And that's why the New Testament church later here in the scriptures is always emphasizing the importance of looking after the widows, because culturally, a widow didn't have anyone to look after her unless she had a grown son. If she had a son, then she had security. And so you see now the double tragedy that has befallen this woman. She was already husbandless, and now she has become sonless. So alongside the emotional pain of her loss that she's experiencing that day, she has also lost every avenue of financial support within her family system. Furthermore, she has lost all access to social standing and to participate in community life. That's just the way it was in that time and in that place. 
And perhaps it's why so many people then from this little town have come for the service out of sheer pity for this poor widow who has lost essentially everything, including her future. Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd are arriving. The funeral procession and a large crowd are leaving. And now what does Jesus see amidst this confluence of noise and people? What does he see? Is his focus on the dead man on the bier? Is is that what he sees? No, look at verse 13 with me. When the Lord saw her. That's what he sees. He sees this grieving woman, husbandless, sonless, hopeless. The epitome of what Jesus meant when he said that he had come to bring good news to the poor. But let's not stop there. It says, when the Lord saw her, comma, his heart went out to her. This is a very powerful word in Greek, one that is rather hard to pronounce. It's splagnitsomai, and it is reserved for the deepest sense of compassion in the New Testament. And so we see it with the father in the story of the prodigal son. We see it here in Luke chapter 7. It could be translated, his heart was filled with compassion. The message paraphrase says, when Jesus saw her, His heart broke. It's the strongest emotion. And Jesus has this laser-like focus on this woman's condition, this woman at the head of the processional, and then into the din and into the noise, he looks her in the eyes and he says two words. He says, don't cry. That's all he says. Don't cry. Now, let's be clear, all right? One of the things that you should not say at a funeral is don't cry. That's not what you're supposed to say to someone who is just crying through the most sorrowful, tragic day in her life. And you wonder if those around Jesus who are hearing this might be catching their breath saying, what? Did you hear that? They're nudging each other saying, what did he say? And I think what he was saying here is what he'd said a chapter earlier in Luke 6 when he said, Blessed are those who weep now, for you will laugh. I think that's what he's reiterating. You see, this is not something you would ever say. Don't cry at a funeral to this woman unless you are Jesus, the Messiah, and you know something that nobody else does. It says then that Jesus went up and touched the beer, bringing the processional to a standstill. I mean, of course this would, this kind of move. The music stops, the pallbearers come to a halt, a hush falls over the crowd, because Jesus has just broken another rule of funeral etiquette, and he has crossed the sacred boundary of ritual purity in the Jewish law. Numbers 19 makes this abundantly clear. Anyone who touches a dead body or a grave, or anything to do with death, was ceremonially unclean for seven days. That's one thing if you were family, and this 
was your duty that you were fulfilling, that was fine. There was provision for that within the law. But for Jesus to walk up and to touch the casket of a stranger and willingly make himself unclean was unthinkable. If you did this at a funeral procession, I just want you to imagine it would stop the whole thing too. You know, if you got out of your car and you went over to that hearse in the processional and you put your hand on the hood, you better believe everything would stop and people would be wondering, what is this person going to do next? Look what happens next in this story. Jesus then speaks to the body. Weird just got weirder. He says, young man, I say to you, get up. And the people are looking at each other and they're saying, did you hear that? This guy's talking to a dead body. He's off his rocker. And he would be unless he is Jesus, the Messiah. And he knows something that nobody else knows, which is exactly the case. Jesus says, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man right there in the air on this burial plank sits up and begins to talk. You see, Jesus came not just to comfort those who mourn. He came to kick death right in the teeth and overcome the grave. And this is a preview of Revelation 21, where it says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. In other words, don't cry. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. One day, finally and completely, this will be fulfilled. Back in our story, I love the tender finish to verse 15. And I just, I just wonder what this looked like, where it says, And Jesus gave him back to his mother. You see, as important as this miracle was, this story is not so much about the dead man as it is about restoring the life of this woman. Charles Wesley described the scene like this. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. As for the people who have witnessed all of this, It says that they were filled with awe and they praised God. Literally, it says that fear seized them and they glorified God. There's this dual response when we encounter the living God. The power of God is so mighty that it knocks us to our knees in fear. And yet it is so good that it lifts our hearts in praise. In fear and in praise, the people don't have all the answers yet, but they have seen enough to know A great prophet has appeared, they say. God has come to help his people. I mean, they must have been thinking here about Elijah, that prophet, when this happened. They knew their Bibles. They knew 1 Kings 17. They knew about the widow at Zarephath. And the parallels are undeniable. The widow losing her only son. The meeting at the town gate. The son being raised from the dead. And then this line, which is identical in both stories, He gave him back to his mother. That's what the people realized that day. That one even greater than Elijah was here. 
Later in the chapter, some of the disciples of John the Baptist will come to Jesus, yet in chapter 7, and they'll say to Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus will say to them, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That day in Nain, good news was proclaimed to this poor woman who was burying her son when Jesus said, don't cry, and he gave her back to his mother. Jesus sees who others don't. And it comes from his heart of compassion. If you want to learn to see like Jesus, then you should ask God to fill your heart with compassion. If you're wondering why our world is such a mess these days, it's because the human heart is devoid of compassion unless Jesus, the Messiah, has come to heal it and fill it. Listen carefully to what the poet William Blake wrote. He said, This life's dim windows of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and goads you to believe a lie when you see with and not through the eye. We live in a time of seeing with the eye, but not through the eye. We live in a time when the physical function of the eye is there, but there is no heart with which to see through it. In these days, we think to ourselves, oh Lord, have mercy and heal our land, heal our sight, and heal our hearts. And may it begin here with us. What opportunity do you have in your life to see like Jesus sees? Where is the confluence of noise around you where someone is going under that no one else sees, but you've spotted them because God is training your vision? Who is the grieving widow, the orphaned parent, the person of zero status? Who in your life is the friendless student, the difficult neighbor, the sorrow-filled coworker who no one else sees? Last Tuesday, our Y Sports softball team beat the only undefeated team in the entire city league. It was amazing. And the other team was stunned. I mean, as this game is going down, they're self-destructing in the dugout, and they couldn't handle the loss. Later, we were in our second game. We always play doubleheaders. That was our first game. Second game of the night, one of those players from the first game comes over behind the backstop, as drunk as can be, and he is yelling obscenities at our team just because we had won in the game prior. He's yelling all the way to the outfield. I mean, the whole place can hear it. I've never seen anything like it. And I'm playing catcher, so this guy is right behind me. And I'm thinking to myself, how is he not getting kicked out of the ballpark? This is crazy. And the more it carried on, and it carried on for a while, the more upset I got until all of a sudden the ump leans toward me and says under his breath, he says, that poor guy, he drinks too much because his wife's at home dying of cancer. 
Do you know what Jesus would have seen that Tuesday night out at the ball fields? You know where his focus would have been? It wouldn't have been on the church team out there in the field. No, it would have been on that guy behind the backstop. And his heart would have overflowed with compassion. Where is your focus these days? What are you seeing? We want to ask God today to give us eyes to see like Jesus and to be a witness to a world full of pain. That's what happened in Nain that day. The people praised God and then spread the news throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And may it be so with us. May it be so in our time that our little homes and our little lives would have the greatness of little Nain. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we bow before you now with holy fear and with praise that you would see us amidst your whole universe and all of humanity, that you would have your eye on us, that you would set us free from sin and death, Lord. What grace, what a gift. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see like Jesus, that you would give us hearts that are full of compassion and the courage of Nain to proclaim your good news wherever your spirit will lead. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.